Today on Not Sam Wrestling, Wade Keller is joining me and we're breaking down kind of the history of the wrestling newsletter and how wrestling journalism, quote unquote, became what it is today. We're going to break down Survivor Series. We're going to talk about All In's new wrestling promotion and a whole lot more. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Hey guys, welcome to Not Sam Wrestling, it's the Thanksgiving edition. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody who's in the States. Everybody who's not in the States, hit up somebody who's in the States and tell them Happy Thanksgiving. Hope everybody's having a good one, hope everybody's with friends and family and whatnot. I'm going to try to uh, make your holiday weekend count. we got a great show for you today. We're going to get into a lot in the state of wrestling. we got to get into that David Arquette thing in the state of wrestling. David Arquette cutting up his neck in a death match this week. Right after he talked to us about how he would get into a fight in a ring if need be. Well, need be. Or was. Need, I don't know what the past tense of need be is. But you understand. That video, by the way, is available at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. It was available there as soon as the podcast was over. Of course, over on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. That's where uh, you can go for all all the Not Sam shills. They get the podcast early. Then you can go, you can get the videos of the interviews the day of, exclusive videos of the State of Wrestling segment. We even got bonus shows, and that's what I was going to tell you. So you can already watch the David Arquette video. It's been up for a week at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling for the Not Sam Shills. It'll be up on the YouTube channel eventually. But we've got bonus shows that are also on Patreon. And this weekend, because it's a holiday weekend, because so many of us are at home, and because it's about family, I'm going to post another uh, episode of Captive Audience. Captive Audience, of course, where I make uh, a member of my family or a loved one, an old friend, sit down and watch a wrestling show uh, that normally they wouldn't watch. They're not wrestling fans. And I try to explain to them why we are wrestling fans. The last show that I uploaded on the Patreon page, which you can have access to, it's a watch-along experience. So it's the entire show. I made my dad sit in the Not Sam studio and watch the entire WrestleMania 9 as I explained to him why this thing was so cool when I was nine years old. This weekend, I will post another episode of Captive Audience over at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling for your audio enjoyment. Uh, speaking of audio enjoyment, uh, we will have Wade Keller on the show today. Wade Keller, and, you know, we started a conversation about Survivor Series, but really what we get into is the history of wrestling newsletters. Wade Keller's been covering wrestling news since 1987. That's when he started the Pro Wrestling Torch, uh, and it's evolved into just a beast. He does like 15 podcasts a week. All the old newsletters are available. The archives are available on the website. The, uh, 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 all the audio archives are available. He keeps a news site that's updated all the time with results and, and live everything. It's, an, it's amazing what he does and the wealth of content he gives. And actually, if you listen to the interview, uh, there's a really good deal. He, he's giving uh, listeners to the podcast a month of PW Torch for like 50 cents. It's usually 10 bucks. You can get the first month for 50 cents. So he gives the code in the interview, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But first, um, you know, we're talking about audio. This Major Brothers Wrestling Podcast, they just won't leave well enough alone. 
you know, Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins, they do a podcast about their wrestling figure uh, eBay collections. They go, it's amazing. You know, they act like they are the end-all be-all. First of all, they make up rules for collecting. They just make them up as they go. Their rules don't even agree with each other. It makes no sense what either of them are talking about. But they've decided that since they have their collections completely made up of figures that were repurchased on eBay, literally they might as well have been collecting for six months. It's all figures that were just purchased on eBay or that Zack Ryder was able to convince some fan to give to him in exchange for a bootleg broski headband and an autographed 8x10. Not a real collection, not a collection that they bought when they came out and they've held on to, nothing like that. You can tell. I mean, it's all stuff. They, you know, they go on their podcast every week and they go, oh, what'd you buy this week? Oh, I bought this figure from 96. I bought this figure from 94. I bought this figure from 89. I got them all and I've had them since they came out. But we had a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we had a vocabulary lesson where I explained to them why calling me a poser was completely out of line. It wouldn't hold up in wrestling court. If I've had the same figures since like I'm a kid, that makes me the opposite of a poser. A poser is somebody that goes on eBay and buys full collections and then puts them on display as if they've accomplished anything when they have not. But I guess they learned from that vocabulary lesson because they kind of moved off the poser word. And instead, this week on their Major Brothers figure extravaganza, they turned around and said I was a mark. Now, I'm going to look up what this means because, you know, I'm just a fan at the end of the day. I don't know this wrestling jargon I don't know what these guys are talking about. Let me look it up. Mark Wrestling. That's what I'm going to Google. I'm going to Google Mark. Oh, Mark Wrestling Term. That's even better. What does this mean? Let me see. Mark. Okay. Mark is a slang term that describes a fan who believes that the characters and events of some or all of professional wrestling are real. The term can also be applied to a fan who idolizes a particular wrestler promotion or style of wrestling to a point some might consider excessive. Some might consider excessive. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fan that is so into this stuff that they either think that this is real life or it's to a point that some might consider excessive. Well, that's a very loose definition. But I would say, if you're going to call the last professional broadcaster, Sam Roberts of Not Sam Wrestling, a mark... I would have to ask, would I be a mark if I was at home building an action figure arena with my podcast logo on it? Would that make me a mark? Would I be a mark if I was having championship titles made so I could just walk around with them? What if I did that twice? What if I had two championship belts made with my logo on them? just so I could walk around and say I'm the champ. Would that make me a mark? If so, well, I haven't done either of those two things, but if that would make me a mark, please tell me in advance so I don't make myself look foolish because I was going to order a championship belt and just walk around and call myself 
the internet champion or something. I don't know what I would call myself exactly. But please let me know in advance if that would make me a mark. Especially, you know, if I sit at home and make an action figure arena with my podcast logo on it. I don't know. If that makes me a mark, let me know. Because I won't do that then. If it's okay, then I'll do it. It's all good. But I just need to know because the last thing I want to do is be made a fool of once again by the Major Brothers Wrestling Figure Podcast. By the way, went to Mattel headquarters over the weekend. Uh, I was actually the first person, believe this or not, the first person who does not work for Mattel to get my hands on both the Pete Dunne and Bob Backlund elite action figures. The first. That includes members of the elite squad. I was certainly the first podcast host to have Pete Dunne and Bob Backlund in my hands, which was quite a thrill for me. But I would like to say that I saw Bill McKenna while I was out there, who's done my podcast. Bill McKenna and I had a great conversation. He looked good. He smelled good. Oh, just to live a day in the life of Bill McKenna would be a thrill for me. What a great dude that Bill is. What a great dude. And I'll tell you this, he designs a hell of an action figure. Love that guy. Bill McKenna, he's a good man. Speaking of good men, Wade Keller is a good man too. Wade Keller, as I said, since 1987, has published The Pro Wrestling Torch. You can get it online now. But if you want to know a little bit of the history of that, if you want to know uh, uh, his perspective on Survivor Series and, and, and everything going in, listen to this interview. I think you're going to love it. Uh, the turkey can wait. Wade Keller is right now on Not Sam Wrestling. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. And as previously stated, uh, this week here on Not Sam Wrestling, one of my favorite people to talk wrestling with, Wade Keller, is back for the first time in a while. What's going on, man? Not too much. Just kind of, you know, in the midst of shifting to holiday weekend and and all the work I'm going to do on my holiday weekend and how it's going to be a little different than normal, scheduling-wise. I never stop working, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's a different mindset this week after a crazy, uh, crazy week or two in, in, uh, pro wrestling. It really is. And since it's Thanksgiving week and we're celebrating, uh, Thanksgiving for all the North American fans here, uh, on the show this week, I thought this would be a good time to celebrate the fact that we're thankful for wrestling. That's what we're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so Survivor Series, uh, went down on Sunday. First of all... What did you think about Survivor Series, not necessarily just as a pay-per-view in 2018, but almost from a historical context? Like, you know, I, I feel like Survivor Series is only starting to kind of get back to a place where it's considered one of the big five, I guess, with Money in the Bank included as well. Because for a while, it kind of started to get pushed to the back end. But for a long time, Survivor Series was one of the big pay-per-views of the year. How do you think this year added to that legacy or detracted from that legacy? Uh, where do you think Survivor Series stands right now? And how do you think it compared to years past? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it was, you know, uh, originally created to go to kind of snuff out Jim Crockett Jr.'s attempt to, to launch Starcade nationally as a Thanksgiving pay-per-view. And so it started as sort of like, well, we don't want to give anything too big away that's going to hurt house show attendance, which is so weird because that's not their mentality now. Yeah. Um, So we're just going to throw a bunch of wrestlers and tag teams and package this event with WrestleMania 
so that uh, cable companies who have limited pay-per-view clearances choose us instead of Jim Crockett. And it, it was, you know, one of the big reasons Crockett ended up selling to Turner because uh, it just they, it was devastating to not get in the pay-per-view game the way that they wanted to. So when you look at the roots of Survivor Series, it, it the tag team idea wasn't created because they thought it would be this great idea that's going to draw a lot of pay-per-view buys. It was, what? how can we create a pay-per-view that won't disrupt other storylines? And, right. and get in the way of house show attendance and what we have planned for, for other big events coming up. And now, and then it went through a phase where because of that tradition, it was seen as a one of the big four. And then it went through a stretch where it was seen as not all that important. Uh, the, the elimination tag matches lost some of their, their the novelty and luster and people knew, okay, it's, it's SummerSlam Rumble, WrestleMania, even King of the Ring for a while was kind of the, the summer event before uh, money in the bank kind of made its its mark. I think they've done a a good job, even though there's aspects of it that I think are a little corny. You know, the Raw SmackDown rivalry, which Shane McMahon completely ignored this week after saying it was the most important thing in the world last yeah, week. Really, really yeah. weird that there was no reference to the fact that they lost in a clean sweep. I thought that that would be a, a kind of a big storyline and almost make SmackDown into an underdog hero type of show, but they really just kind of didn't say anything about it. Not only that, but Shane McMahon had said on Twitter, you know, big change is coming. And the big change was just being too sore to take in in an impromptu tag match with Miz. Yeah. I mean, it was just that it was a weird it was a weird episode of SmackDown. I, I think we have to wait till Tuesday to see how it shakes out. But it, yeah, they lost something there. But so it, it's a little weird when they make it seem like, you know, Raw versus SmackDown and all the heels and baby faces set their grudges aside to fight for brand pride. But at the same time, what it's done is it it has created it, a novel moment in the fall or winter, wherever we are, I never know. Um, hmm. uh, and where it's different, you know what I mean? Like it stands out as different because it is a chance to see a match you would not see otherwise. The Raw champ versus SmackDown champ, both women and men. And then a bunch of people teaming together wouldn't normally team together and a bunch of wrestlers wrestling each other who don't really wrestle each other and might not again for years. So in that sense, it's good. This year's Survivor Series it just got blown up. I mean, the, the, the match, it was going to be a one-match show. Ronda and Becky, and the conversation and the feeling about it, this specific event's importance and place in history would be so different had that taken place. And instead, we got Charlotte and Ronda, but I don't get the feeling a few days out here that Charlotte-Ronda turned out to be like this historically really significant match like like Becky was. I think that match, deserved, Charlotte and Ronda deserved and needed more time to be built up. So that ended up being less than I think it could have been, but they had to do something. Um, the Brian Lesnar match, though, I think is what this show will be remembered for more so. And in, in that sense, it's historically significant. It was part of this one-week evolution to Dana Bryan's character in a big way, a transformation. So I think they're doing a good job making it one of the big annual pay-per-views, but I don't think anybody would still consider it as big as SummerSlam or WrestleMania or the Rumble, because it's Survivor Series still feels to me like a novelty pay-per-view that's a little outside of the normal narrative path. I mean, even Money in the Bank has actual ramifications that are gonna, uh, you know, go in. It's it, it it tells you going forward who are gonna be some key players on Raw yeah. and SmackDown, which Survivor Series doesn't necessarily. Um, you've been well, so and I'll throw in uh, Survivor Series. The, the the influence it has is letting fans know that Raw is still the A brand. <laughs> That's, well, yeah. That's the lasting the lasting impression. I, think I mean, by a mile, I guess at this point. Yes. Um, so you've been how the PW Torch started when? 1987. 
Okay, so you've been covering Survivor Series since the beginning. Absolutely. I've covered every single one of them, yep. I, I remember, in fact, in 1987, mm -hmm. just a few weeks after publishing my first newsletter while I was in college, having a choice between um, watching the Survivor Series on pay-per-view, going to a, I think it was the Orpheum in downtown Minneapolis, to watch Starcade on closed circuit, because Vince McMahon's predatory move to, to knock Jim Crockett's Starcade off of, uh, off of, off of uh, pay-per-view, um, led to Starcade being on closed circuit instead in a lot of places, or go to the Minneapolis Auditorium just a few blocks away and watch Kurt Henning against Greg Gagne for the AWA title headline, one of the last even slightly relevant AWA shows, which was a territory, the, it was a major promotion that I grew up watching, the birth of Hulkamania and the Road Warriors there. Um, the Road Warriors didn't start there, but they were from this area and were very big stars in the AWA in the 80s. And so that's kind of where my fandom started. So that was a big deal. I ended up going, well, there's one show I can see in person and the others I can watch later. So I went to the AWA show, but it was a tough choice. So yeah, that was, it was a very big weekend for me, uh, barely a month into publishing the newsletter because there was so much to cover that weekend. Yeah, and how do you watch the stuff later? Because it's not like you got DVR in 1987. Oh, exactly. It was it was just tapes. Like I, I, a friend who had a VHS tape could record Survivor Series. And then uh, Starcade, I actually had to have someone send me a tape of it who had <laughs> pay-per-view access and a VHS. So I watched Starcade like a week and a half later. Wow. wow. And it was all new. You didn't have to worry about like staying off Twitter for spoiler alerts at that point. No. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, I actually had to cover what happened in Starcade in the newsletter. So I think I ended up knowing what happened in Starcade before. I, but it's, it's, yeah. So as somebody who went to college, as somebody who went to journalism school, as somebody who knows what words mean, WWE for the longest time, and it might be since the very beginning, says sole survivors, no matter how <laughs> many survivors there are. And it drives me absolutely crazy when there are two or more people and they say soul survivors i go right to the movie airheads when i go there's three of you you're not exactly lone yeah i'm right here right you can't have more than one soul survivor right yes right okay good good i mean I'm, i don't need to say anything more than yes right you okay correct yeah that's right i i was <laughs> like to find new words I, I'm, I'm going am i the crazy one here why do they keep saying soul survivors um do you have a favorite, so so you've kind of, and it's really interesting talking to you because you have a different perspective on all of this because where we've all watched for as long as we've watched for, you're one of the very few people that have the perspective of watching and covering this stuff and watching with the intent to cover it for this long, from the beginning of Survivor Series. Um, so you, your experience is, I think, totally different than most people. Do you have a favorite Survivor Series that you've covered? Oh, man. Um, I I don't... Nothing comes to mind. Like, it's... And that's part of the issue. I guess I, if you gave me a, a few options, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that, that well, I remember that moment. So then a better question, yeah. what did you think, as somebody who had covered Survivor Series, as somebody who got, like, Survivor Series was... Before it was the one time of the year when Raw and SmackDown compete in head-to-head -head competition, <laughs> it was teams of five strive to survive... And Survivor Series 91 was, of course, it was the first time there was ever a singles match on a Survivor Series show, and it was Undertaker versus Hulk Hogan. Um, when WWE, and, and that was a pretty significant Survivor Series because yeah. not only was it the singles match, but at the last minute, which, you know, I guess history would repeat itself, but at the last minute, they decided to change what was the biggest elimination tag match 
and they turned it down from four on four to three on three. They took Jake Roberts out, and I think Psycho Sid, or Sid Justice at the time, I think they took him out, and they shifted some of their energy into the Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view, which had yet to be announced. You know, it would be announced at the beginning of that Survivor Series show. But what did you think in that moment, A, of the idea that WWE is now going to start incorporating singles matches into Survivor Series? And B, since we're talking about it, do you remember how you covered this idea that WWE, out of nowhere, is adding this Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view? Yeah, it was controversial at the time because it felt... I I remember how I felt in the theater with Back to the Future 2. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait a second. That's not an ending. That's a teaser. That's a trailer for Back to the Future 3. Um, I think people felt that way about that. It felt a little bit like a money grab. You know, oh, we're not done charging you yet to see the end of what's happening. It was weird, but it was also kind of exciting. You know, because it it was something that hadn't been done before. It was an experiment uh, for WWE that they did not repeat. And and that tells you something about the fan reaction and whether it was successful. But the idea was, can we have a promote on Monday Night Raw a pay-per-view for the next night and have a fast and, and, and use that kind of hook where we're not telling people six days later buy something, but the next day buy something? Uh, how 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 will that pay off? I mean, it was it was controversial, but it was a time when WWF was experimenting we're trying to figure out how, you know what the rules were and 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 whether you could shake up the 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 understood approach of how pay-per-views work and and vary it up a little bit they also they they had the idea for shotgun saturday night years later yeah yeah totally a, a weekly pay-per-view on saturday night in a nightclub atmosphere it's going to be edgy and and it ended up just becoming a tv show cuz it just it just for a variety of reasons didn't work out. So, yeah, I mean, I don't th- it wasn't embraced, but it was sort of exciting and different. Like for me it was like one more thing to cover before publishing deadline. And so that was kind of fun, but yeah, I mean, that's I mean, it, it's amazing how that was 27 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Especially because, you know, November of 91, you really didn't have a lot of schmozzy finishes to title matches where it was kind of incomplete like now we're kind of used to it because every month there's a pay-per-view and there's a follow-up on raw and there's always going to be follow-up but for the most part leading up to that a title match had a sense of finality when you paid for it on pay-per-view right yeah yeah you were expecting to see you didn't i mean it didn't always happen uh but it was controversial when it didn't there was an understanding almost a unstated pact that there's house shows and there's TV shows. And then at pay-per-view, you see title changes and conclusions to feuds or a major chapter in feuds. Um, But, you know, wrestling companies sometimes got in trouble by not following, not, 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 not honoring that unstated pact with fans. Right. And, and it, you know, it did hurt. Yeah. I mean, pay-per-view when, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but like in the early nineties, pay-per-views, there weren't organized fan conventions or, or fan fest or anything like that. But there was a group of us who traveled in the early 90s to the WCW pay-per-views in Baltimore, Philadelphia, and uh, uh, outside of Detroit, and uh, I'm trying to think of the other place, Phoenix, for WCW pay-per-views. And we'd get together and, and coordinate, not through the internet, um, but through uh, newsletters and and announce, you know, it's a hotel that you should get a room at, and we're just going to, you know, hang out because it was hard to find wrestling fans back then. You know, I mean, it was wow. pre- RSPW pre message boards. 
Um, and so it was a way through newsletters for us to meet and get to know what people looked like and what they were like in person because we knew each other's names through basically letters pages in the uh, the print copy newsletters back in the day. And so those early 90s conventions are are really cool memories for me because it's the only chance you had to ever get together with like-minded hardcore wrestling fans. Was it at all stressful because you're sitting there going like, okay, you got this newsletter, you know, PW Torch, and yeah, you got a subscription base, but when you're doing a convention now, because we have the internet, we know what to expect when we get there. When you're doing, and I know it's not a full-fledged convention, but even just a sort of like meet and greet, hang out, let's all go to the shows together, you don't really know how many people are going to show up to this thing, do you? Like, you don't know until you get there because you just put the word out in the newsletter and hope that it sticks, right? Uh, true. I mean, th I think we knew it would be in the dozens, <laughs> you know, in terms right. of, like, fans. I mean, you know, there'd be... It was almost like a, a, a secret society in the sense that you would get invited by other... by people who were already in kind of the newsletter... I won't call it a click, but the small group of people who communicated with each other and, and were hardcore fans and were tape traders and that kind of thing, they might go, they might bring a fan with them who wasn't a newsletter reader, wasn't quite that hardcore or tell a few friends or something like that. But it, we kind of all, we most, most of the people who showed up, we felt we knew just through typing up letters and sending them in the mail to each other or, or reading each other's opinions in the newsletters. So it was a, it was a relatively small group, but I mean, I created new readers who are still with me to this day by handing out free copies outside of Baltimore arena. You know, uh, um, I mean, I would, I would bring newsletters with me and stand outside on the perimeter of the, the arena grounds. And I was, you know, this ambitious entrepreneur in his early twenties trying to uh, spread the word to fans who didn't know that there was this source of inside information that they might have been craving and just didn't know existed. Um, so it was an, it was a marketing opportunity to reach new people who then later ended up becoming kind of part of that that uh, circle of insider fans, so to speak. So you guys were kind of like the Freemasons of wrestling. To be one, <laughs> you of. must know one. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, so how do you? So so is that really? Was that the spot to get business? Because I always just find it so fascinating. You're in college. It's 1987. You don't have the internet. You know, you've got. The people that you communicate with are just the people that you communicate with, if that makes sense. So you've got this idea to start this newsletter. you got a passion for wrestling. You like reporting. You want to be able to, to uh, communicate about this stuff with other people. To go f nowadays, to go from idea to execution on just about anything, you know, the Internet's made it so simple. It's really amazing. It's revolutionized the idea of content creation. But then when you decide you want to do a newsletter number one how do you come how do you find sources or at the time was it not news based was it more results based and number two how do you spread the word to people in any sort of significant number that you've got this newsletter out there yeah uh great questions um it, it was definitely news based um it was uh, one of my early niches was interviews and so uh there were not wrestlers in its for newer fans today, it's it's unfathomable to not imagine being able to listen to wrestlers talk about the business right. in a conversational way. That was that was taboo. I mean, um, there, you know, the, the, the quote kayfabe or protecting the the inner workings and the way the business operated it was still a big thing in, in the late 80s. 
Um, and so it was a it was a bit of a pioneering uh, approach to take to try to get wrestlers to speak on the record. So besides the the news aspect of it, which was yeah, it was results, uh, but it was also going to local indie shows, uh, going to AWA shows, um, trying to establish contacts and getting information. And wrestlers wanted information to be spread. They they. There, not everybody, but there are wrestlers, especially younger generation, who are like, they want the truth to be out there about what was going on behind the scenes, especially if they felt that unfair things were happening in terms of pay, in terms of schedule, in terms of politics. Mm. So it was their way to kind of get word out about the old guard and the new guard wanting to have an influence. And so, I mean, one of my first big interviews was Vern Gagne, who was very old school. I don't think he had any idea what he was getting himself into uh, based on at one point going, who are you again and who are you with? <laughs> when I started asking questions about, you know, controversies regarding Bergani's yeah, promoting cause, practices. Because shoot interview isn't even a thing back then. So they probably think you're just some kid doing an interview for like a college newspaper exactly. that's going to promote and I, the show. And say, what's your favorite match? Who's your toughest opponent? Right. And so early on, I, I went against that. I, I, it was controversial when Chris Cruz, who was a WCW announcer I remember Chris under Cruz. contract to WCW, did an interview with me and talked very frankly about the wrestling industry, the scene, the politics of announcing, all that stuff. He got heat for that. Um, and what year was he that? He was a former CNN anchor, and he was just like, I'm, I'm, I respect what Wade you're doing, and I, I want to interview. Eddie Gilbert, Paul Heyman, Jim Cornette, those were Mick Foley. Those are four of the really big new generation names who did long form on record interviews with me in the uh, the late 80s and then into the early 90s, mostly and, and with most of those names and hours and hours of interviews with Heyman and, and Eddie and Cornette and Mick Foley um, and, and their ideas and the way they looked at the business and the way they were willing to speak openly about it was a huge thing. Um, so even when I would reach out to ask someone to do an interview, because then I just start networking. You know, can I have? Hey, I want. I I would start asking from people I know up for phone numbers, and I would cold call wrestlers. I mean, it's rude <laughs> to think of that now. I don't it's even cold it's call insane. my friends. Yeah, that's rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm like, it must be an emergency, or else you're pissing me off. Why are you calling me? Text me. Uh, so, but back then I would cold call wrestlers and go, Hey, I'm Wade Keller. I do the Processing Torch newsletter. Don't know if you heard of it, but we do interviews. I'd love to have a half hour, hour of your time. And I would get interviews that way. Or they'd go, I don't want to do an interview, but can I tell you something off record? I, I know what you're doing. Like, so sources got created that way. Wow. I mean, that and is, that's wild. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, that's amazing. Now, was there, who were some of the people that you would call up and they'd go, no, I know what you're doing. Get the hell out of my face. You got to be out of your mind if you think that I'm going to contribute to this nonsense? Oh, good question. Um, it's funny. I didn't, I, 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 I got to say this. I got, I had a good sense of who probably would not be receptive right. and probably was wise enough or steered away from calling them. Mm -hmm. um, that said, uh, one of my, one of my strategies, um, I'll call it in retrospect, but it was, it was, had other purposes too. Um, I would do summer annuals. Uh, I did year-end yearbooks, and then I did summer annuals. So besides the newsletter every week, I'd put together books, which I need to reissue one of these days. But um, they've been out of print for like 25 years. But I would do themes. So I'd have the summer annual, and I had the evolution of wrestling. And my goal was with that to talk to people who normally wouldn't think of talking to a dirt sheet or a newsletter. But I would say I, I would get one name who was an older legend and old school to agree. And then I'd use that to leverage getting more people to join. And so in the summer annuals, I did the evolution of wrestling and I talked to Roy Shires and Lou Thez and Jerry Lawler. And, and so I'd talk to a bunch of old kind of old timers 
and and get them to talk about what they had. And I wanted to learn. I mean, it wasn't like just a mark up ruthless marketing strategy. I really wanted to learn. I wanted to talk to these older names. They hadn't talked at length about the business. There wasn't book writing. There weren't podcasts. So I saw it as an opportunity to get some insight from them and get it in print and on record for history. So that was a way that I approached people like Jerry Lawler, who then was very old school and would have said no. But I said, oh, but Jerry, you know, I've, I've got this guy and this guy and this guy, and I think you belong in the group with right. these legendary names. And Jerry's like, all right. And then it went well. And I did my homework and I approached it in a way where then people were willing to talk to me and said, hey, this 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 kid's serious about what he's doing. I'm going to respect his effort and persistence and good questions and, and do that. And I did an, um, a theme of announcing. So it was a big deal, but I got Jim Ross and Lance Russell. Um, uh, Ken Resnick, I think, was in that book. So I, I interviewed uh, Mick Karsh, who was a AWA ring announcer and a longtime indie wrestling announcer. I got a bunch of announcers to do interviews with me because they didn't want to be left out of the announcer book. You know, because right, there's so of little course. pro wrestling media. Yeah. So that's an approach that I took. And then that led, in some cases, to... Um, to people who would be willing to talk to me or point me in the right direction to talk to other people to develop sources and gather news. And then marketing-wise, wasn't just handing out issues, because I know you asked that too. Yeah. It was just handing out issues in front of arenas, but I did a lot of that, especially in hardcore WCW markets where it, WWF fans were different back then, and WCW fans were much more likely to be into the insider wrestling because it was Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen and the Midnight Express and Cornette, as opposed to... The, it was sort of the enemy, the hardcore fan, then the WWF, which is Hulk Hogan and Undertaker. Oh, my God, that's just a cartoon character. It's so right now. Um, <laughs> but I was the first one to take out full page advertisements in the newsstand wrestling magazines, which was controversial, even among insider fans going, you can't open up that world to the marks. They can't handle this information. I got pushback even oh, from wow. people in my inner circle. But I did it, got good feedback and grew that way. I took ads out. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I did it a hundred times, but probably 50 times in sporting news, um, took ads out in sporting news and, and got, you know, thousands of people to try the torch through doing that. And, uh, USA today, uh, multiple times I ran display ads in the sports section in USA today. I did hockey news, a few other places, uh, some, some regional newspapers also. And so I expanded the readership in the newsletter in that way. And I was the first one to do any of that, um, uh, to do any mainstream advertising of insider wrestling newsletters. So when when Meltzer really starts to gain the reputation as being like, you know, he's doing TV appearances, he's doing this, and he's like this this insider, do you start to, at the time, as a young man, feel competitive with him? Because like you said, there's very little wrestling media, right? There's a handful of wrestling newsletters, if that. You know, at the end of the day, really it's only two sort of – mainstream mainstream wrestling newsletters that have that have kind of survived the day but it's not like there's all these websites and these podcasts and there's everything right. where it's like we're just kind of doing our thing like the amount of people that are doing newsletters and hitting a lot of people is only a few so do you is there a camaraderie amongst newsletter writers or is there a competition because you're both after the same audience yeah um i would say more camaraderie but also competition mm -hmm. um in the when when I started the Prosing Torch newsletter, it was because I discovered other wrestling newsletters were out there. Because Wrestling Eye Magazine, which is uh, in, it's an answer to a trivia question. But Mike Bellew, who was the editor of Wrestling Eye Magazine in the mid '80s, changed the course of my life 
and that of, of many others. And I don't know how, I mean, it's a butterfly effect type thing, but he had a fan club section in the back of Wrestling Eye Magazine. And Wrestling Eye Magazine had a uh, eclectic, I'll say in a complimentary way, um, mix of kayfabe and non-kayfabe articles in it. <laughs> so in one page, you would have something very, that could be right out of the these Stanley Weston or the After Mags, um, or the ones George Napolitano edited and did photography for. And then the next page, there'd be an insider article. And it would, here's secrets about wrestling, 10 things you didn't know. And it would, it would talk about wrestling matches being predetermined. Well, he in the back of the magazine had the fan club section. And it was for, you know, predating insider wrestling newsletters. There were newsletters, but they were fanzines that were built largely around the top wrestler in a territory and a fan club. And people would follow the fan club. And they would subscribe, pay basically postage and printing. This is a term a lot of your listeners might not know. SASE was a big thing in the 80s, self-addressed Yes, of course. We don't hear that anymore. But sometimes you could get a free fan bulletin just by sending in an SASE to the fan club person. Or you'd have to include a dollar. And they'd send you, you know, a year's worth. That's when you um, would literally, and, I mean, and, and, and I would do this when I was a kid to try to get autographs from different wrestling promotions. Uh-huh. You, would, you would write a letter and you would you would add an envelope with a stamp and your address on it that was not sealed. And then you would put that into a sealed envelope with a stamp and an address on it. So that way they don't have to pay for postage. They don't have to address it. You just make it easy for them. They put something in an envelope and and you see sometimes nothing, sometimes a month later in your mailbox, there's, there's something there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, So those fanzines or fan club bulletins, created a network of fans and that predated me doing the torch. Those were kind of fading away. And then, um, I, the first newsletter I got in the mail was John Gallagher's wrestling forum. And, um, it was based out of Illinois, but it was, uh, not to get too into it, but he, he folded the newsletter in half. It was like a booklet, but it was uh, like 20 pages or 16 pages or something. And, and I, I, I must've, I think I got like two or three copies in two days, um, that he sent to me when I first subscribed. And I don't know how many times I read those before, like over and over and over again. I was like, oh my God, I, it was a fast turnaround time on results. It was only a week and a half before wow. I could find out what happened at, at Madison Square Garden <laughs> as opposed to th- two months yeah. through the newsstand magazines. And then I got the Observer in the mail. And then I got some other ones that were kind of more of the uh, the era of results zines from the early 80s and the fan club bulletins. But I just subscribed to everything in Wrestling Eye. And then the newsletters would plug each other. We knew that it was just it was just a courtesy kind of like we do with podcasting right you know um it was it was a just hey we're competitors but we're also friendly and how do people find you i recommend you and we'd all do that for each other in the newsletters so there was sort of the big three in the late 80s wrestling observer processing torch and wrestling forum mm-hmm. john gallagher faded steve beverly's matt watch came in became one of the big three and and but then the others kind of were more niche oriented i guess and and proud of it but didn't grow or last and so that's a medium nutshell of how that evolved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, th- I mean, I think it's fascinating. I also, I mean, I've always, and we've kind of talked about it here and there without ever getting specific, but, you know, there's this idea that, you know, wrestling promotions hate dirt sheets, wrestling promotions hate these websites, that, that and it's not a WWE, all of them, you know, that's, that's the sort of idea. But there was a time when WWE was cooperating with you guys, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's been up and down. Um, there was a time when when Sally or Ed would call me from WWE headquarters every Monday morning, and I, if I was in the office, I'd pick up. If not, they'd leave a message, and they would tell me the exact attendance, 
the exact amount of money earned from ticket sales and the exact amount of money earned for merchandise sales with the per head average. And they wanted that on record and in print because they got tired of seeing numbers that were wildly wrong. Right. And they weren't a publicly traded company, but for whatever reason, they wanted it out there. But this is a funny part. If I called them up three days later and said, hey, can you tell me the next time you're going to be in Chicago? They'd go, we can't release that information. <laughs> like, it was crazy. You could, they did not, because they felt like if future dates got published, other promoters oh. would mess with it. And so they wanted to create a lot of footwork necessary in order to find out when their future dates were. So it's just, it's like one of those just weird little quirky things about wrestling history and when they sh would share information or not. You couldn't get anything out of WWE on an official level about anything coming up in the future. The only way you could know when a show was coming up there was no website. There was no press releases through email or Twitter. You had to know someone who watched television in that market who would then send you a letter or call you and leave a message on a on your answering machine and tell, say, hey, wait, uh, they announced the next time that they're going to be at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago is February 22nd. Like, that's the only way you could learn about that. So, yeah, they've been cooperative at times. I mean, there's there's been times Vince McMahon has called me just to complain about Ted Turner. Um, there were, Vince called me one time and demanded I do an on-record interview with him so he could vent. Um, there are other times that I called and asked him for an interview, and, and this was actually years earlier, and he agreed to do a long-form interview with me, and then he asked for the questions ahead of time. And I said, well, I'll send you a list of topics I have in mind so you can think about them ahead of time, but I can't promise these are the only questions I ask. And it was through the PR person, and the PR person said, no, the, you have to tell us what questions are the only ones you can ask. And I said, I, I can't agree to those terms. I would never do that. And then it didn't happen. <laughs> I get um, that. So, so I turned down a Vince McMahon interview, actually, at one point. Uh, but years later, we did one, and it, it was great. And so there's, yeah, it's been various levels of, of friendliness and non-friendliness. Hey, wait, come to WrestleMania. We've got a, a, a media section set up or, uh -huh. um, you know, invites to shows and other times, you know, much less friendly. What is that like? For you, and and this is something I've always wondered. What the reason why I have, for a long time, and we'll get into because you know I've 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 talked a lot about wrestling journalism and and what I think oh, of it. Oh yeah, and you stuff. did once, didn't you? Yes, 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 I did. <laughs> and you know, I kind of I kind of have always tried to make you an exception, and that's part of the reason why we're talking because the idea of finding sources and reporting news and all this stuff, like you're you're clearly coming off of a journalism degree and, and treating this like journalism, but I think we both kind of agreed that there's a lot more of the stuff that I was talking about um, that's not remotely journalism, um, which isn't has nothing to do with you. You know, you all you can do is the best job that you can do. But the reason why I, from the beginning, was adamant about the fact that you know, I will not, not only will I never claim to be a journalist, I will never let anybody call me a journalist. I will never uh, let that even sort of be an unsaid thing. Like there is nothing about what I'm doing that I would consider any sort of journalism. I don't hold myself to journalism standards. I'm clearly a fan. You know what I mean? I clearly have a pro WWE bias. Yeah, I clearly have relationships with some of these wrestlers that they're buddies and it's like we're we're chatting or whatever and you know so it was, and I'm more interested in doing that than being a reporter which is why you know I feel like what I do is different and and has it is just totally different and has a different value than what you do but 
because that's my perspective, when you go through these things where you've got a Vince McMahon who's calling you on the phone because he wants to vent, or you've got a Paul Heyman or a Mick Foley who very early in their careers are doing hours and hours of interviews with you and really confiding in you, does it become difficult for you to separate and realize these they're not these people aren't my friends and this isn't the sort of thing where Vince McMahon and I are going to talk forever or you know Paul Heyman is going to go off and do something else now and I'm not going to be able to get hours and hours of interviews from him whenever I want because this isn't a friendship thing this is a thing where I'm doing my job as a writer and as a journalist and he's coming to me because I'm the person who disseminates information not that it hasn't happened by accident. It certainly has. But I have never looked to wrestling for friendships, like people in the business. Right. And and part of it is, you know, I started at age 16 uh, as a junior in high school. Two years later, I was in journalism school. Um, you know, three years later, I'm interning at a, a top 20 TV station um, and, and uh, hosting a weekly wrestling radio show on a 50,000-watt all sports station, the second of its kind in the country, I believe. I think WFAN was first, but KFAN came second. And I was around journalism and journalists. Uh, my journalism professor in my freshman year of college was a, an award-winning Vietnam reporter who who did tremendous work. I, I had uh, a very idealistic, pure version of what it meant to be a journalist and was surrounded by it and immersed myself in it. And I knew from a very early age that I was more interested in being a journalist about something than involved in wrestling at any cost. Um, I would be a journalist before I would be involved in wrestling. As much as I was a huge wrestling fan as a kid and as much as it's been this huge part of my life, I think my my course in life was going to be journalism. And it happened that I, I tied it to a hobby and then found a niche and then succeeded. Um, so I didn't look to be involved in wrestling because I wanted to be friends with wrestlers or promoters. Um, that's it's it's that's actually almost been a badge of honor from a very young idealistic mindset uh, that I wouldn't look to wrestling as my social circle. My social circle and friends were people who didn't like wrestling, or if they did, they were fans and not involved in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think to to the main answer to your question is it actually was more disappointing to people in wrestling, and I felt bad about it at times where people thought I was their friend first and a journalist second. I see. And they felt betrayed. Um, Eddie Gilbert felt betrayed by me at times. Mick Foley expressly has felt betrayed by me at times. Jim Cornette um, sent me death threats and said horrible racist things about my mother on phone messages because he felt betrayed by me. Um, Paul Heyman um, handled things with more class than 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 that. But he, he has felt um, <laughs> betrayed. Be, but Paul, actually, I got to give Paul credit because, I mean, Paul always, whether it was lip service because he knew what, what buttons to push with me or not, always said, Wade, you, you, I, I consider you my friend, but you are a journalist first and you should never let our friendship get in the way of you doing what you think journalistically you should do. Very few people approach me that. But Joe Pettacino, you know, of the Global Wrestling Federation mm-hmm. on ESPN, um, he felt, but, but I never, the, when I say they felt betrayed, maybe d- disappointed or hurt or something's a better way to put it because I never made promises and broke my word. But I think they thought because they provided me information and access that I would not say when I thought a wrestling show was bad, that it was bad. Right. Um, and, and that's, it was never on a personal level. They felt betrayed, but they felt like maybe they bought extra slack 
and I didn't give it to him. Even Bill Watts, whose interview with me in the Evolution of Wrestling Summer Annual I talked about, got him his job in WCW. Um, what you know, it was the, the executives at TBS reading that interview led to him getting his job. I, when I gave a really bad review to his Clash of Champions special, and was very uh, uh, like down on his booking out of the gate. Um, he called me up and felt betrayed, felt hurt, and read words that I wrote saying, how can you write something? I thought we had a good relationship. I said, yeah, but this was a bad show. So I I, I, w I always felt like my obligation was to, to my readers to be honest and not have them think I was ever betraying my pact with them to convey what I thought deserved criticism and not let a friendship get in the way of, of that. And so I always served my readers more than I did any kind of friendship with with people in business. But fortunately, that served me well, because people, even if it was painful sometimes or hurtful, understood that I did stand that I stood for something, in other words, and, and yeah. ultimately, most people respected me for it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't I think that to look at somebody who has that kind of integrity, where, you know, look, most people, especially when you're young, and you start getting access, did you ever, especially when you felt competitive, like, look, you know, is this is the newsletter game you're the one who has to get scoops that's why they're going to pick one newsletter over the other i mean some of it will be just in the writing i prefer this writing style to the other but at the end of the day i mean you're going to need to get information you're going to need to get scoops yeah. did you ever worry okay look this was not a good show but if i trash this show the way i want to trash this show this information source is going to dry up in the future yeah and 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 they did um you know, information sources did go away um, when they would have been valuable because I did not, I, I knew that would happen and I still said what I said or wrote what I wrote. Um, and it did cost me sources and scoops. And I just put, I, it, I mean, I'm not trying to say it's like the most important thing in the world or, or you know, like I, I stood above my competitors with more integrity or anything like that. But I like, it just wasn't in my DNA mm -hmm. to ever get in that game. Like I couldn't get in the game of like, well, I need inside information for this person, so I'm going to give them more stars to their match or or bury a controversy that they're involved in. So I can say I covered it, but I didn't draw much attention to it. Like, I just, I won't say to a fault, but to a level that I thought was appropriate, um, just said when I thought, you know, I mean, Jim Cornette and Smoking My Wrestling was running angles that were drawing upon racist tendencies of parts of his fan base with with the gangsters and it led to a bunch of there was a n words being thrown around by by wrestlers and a fa fan riot six police stations were called from the region and i did a big story on it and that's when Cornette blew up at me he he felt like i i i was trying to be too much of a journalist and made too big of a deal out of it and i interviewed people who were on the scene including fans and really did a a thorough job on it bruce mitchell my columnist who's been a big part of this since 1990 um, it was very strong in his wording, and and it was one of those situations where it it blew up a source who could have been, and I agree, Jim Cornette on probably eighty percent of things politically and wrestling wise, but it, that's something that ended things with me and him, um, you know, mutually since then. Yeah, and I mean, I would imagine if he's leaving racist messages about your family, you're kind of okay with it. Oh yeah, I mean, he said, "I don't, I, don't worry about me getting a gun through an airport because I'm just going to drive." <laughs> That's ridiculous. And I have it on tape, you know. I mean, it's just like stuff like that. And you know, Cornette's a hothead, and friends of his were like, "Yeah, he might be serious, he might not." And I was like, "Oh, great," you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, so but 
I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part, part of the, of the game, game, right? That, that's, that's what yeah. you signed up for. So at what point did you notice the, the game was changing in the sense that was it, you know, as the internet came about, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess the first would be like the hotlines that the promotions were like, well, if people are making money off of inside information, we'll just do it on the hotlines. But I would imagine that that wasn't a giant competitor to you guys. I would, I would think that you specifically, it would be the free websites that would come out and, and publish information because I mean, to my recollection, and it still goes on today most of the information that is published on these websites is just lifted from newsletters, right? Yeah, I think it's less so than it used to be. I mean, I, I do think that there are website reporters now where uh, there's more news being broken by a wider number of people mm-hmm. um, than, than there has been at any other time, which is good. I mean, I, I, I want there to be journalism and and in, in, in reporting on wrestling. I don't want it's not my it's not my exclusive domain. Um, I don't want that responsibility, and I don't think it's healthy. So it, it's less of that than it used to be. But I mean, I'm the, the rests. I, I wrestleline.com was one of the big websites in the late '90s. Uh, wrestling Inc. was the longest running brand and probably the number one independent website out there right now um, in terms of traffic and just sheer news content. Um, but WrestleLine was a big one. Uh, S, uh, let's see, what was uh, Scoops.com, I think was one of them, or something like that. But WrestleLine, the day that I launched PWTorch.com, which was, I think, November 30th or December 1st, uh, 1999. Um, it was one of those two dates. And the day that I launched, the main news reporter from WrestleLine s- said, I no longer serve a purpose and I'm going to stop doing updates because now I was reporting news from the torch hotline and from the torch newsletter now waits online i wouldn't feel right doing it like he was like the only reason i did is because it was a different medium wow and he and he just stepped he just stopped doing them um and so yeah there came a point and i say that as a story because early on it was frustrating because we were breaking news on the 900 line sure. and in the newsletter and then the websites sometimes without crediting and sometimes reporting in summary format item for item what was on our hotlines and dave Meltzer ran ran into this too um and there's some names in the wrestling reporting world who did this uh, and who are still around today um, and who would take information off the hotlines and report it on their website and not give credit. So it was frustrating. And that's why, you know, we ultimately got in the game and realized, you know, we're, we've been very busy doing our thing and it's working for us, but we got to enter this, this newer realm and this new, newer medium. And it is the future. Is it frustrating for you now? I mean, with the amount of websites and you, I mean, you don't strike me as a very negative guy, so maybe you just kind of ignore it, but with the, amount of websites and podcasts and YouTube channels and just the amount of sheer content that's out there, the the integrity factor that you talked about is growing increasingly and increasingly rare in the sense that, you know, there's not nearly the, the, the percentage of people who are reporting on wrestling that are actually out trying to get sourced news versus just copying it from other sources or, you know, copying and pasting and, and, and doing it from people who are doing that is, is, is small, right? Uh, does, does it, does it bother you that there are so many that don't kind of have any integrity in this thing? I was probably more protective of 
the wrestling journal journalism genre, um, you know, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, I sort of feel like in this social media, anybody can have a website that as long as Google news, you know, grabs a headline can get a lot of clicks on a certain day. I sort of feel it's just like out of anybody's hands. Like I feel like it's, it, there is just more of a group source, uh, environment for for news collection and 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 then just redistribution it feels unwieldy and and hard so hard to control at this point that i don't get frustrated i i i I was gonna say i'm resigned to it but resignation sort of can imply frustration Mm -hmm. but i i'm i've sort of just stepped away from worrying about that you know like i've got my ecosystem i do what i do i make a living i'm proud of the work we do i've adjusted Usually, hopefully mostly making the right decision and where I put my time and resources. Um, perhaps I've been either too late or too early or, or you know, there's only so much time and resources to, to do what I do and I've adjusted over the years as I've done it. And I've sort of just felt, I feel like now there's so many things out there that I can't keep track of that there's people who are, who have probably been doing their job a long time who I wouldn't know their name, you know, like, yeah. uh, because it's just hard to keep track of that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I feel like yeah. less less of a guardian of it because I just feel like it would be wasted energy. It's it's too unruly and there's too many people doing too many things. So I've just sort of lost track of it. But there's moments that I see things that are brought to my attention or run across them when I am reading other sites or hearing what's on other podcasts. And I'm like, oh, I don't that's I don't like that, but I also think to myself, they probably won't last if that's the way that they're approaching this. Yeah, I mean, and totally answers my question. I think that that's the healthiest way to approach it. I mean, I think in general, if you find people who are successful long term, it's because they really spend their time focusing on what they're doing and making their own product better as opposed to, you know, worrying about and getting upset over other stuff and competing with that person and trying to one up that guy. Those are the ones that kind of end up making a big splash in a moment and then fading away pretty quickly after. Yeah. I mean, we're a lot of weeks, the number one current events based podcast on iTunes until your show drops. And then <laughs> you're a few spots ahead of us. I'm like, Arr. but like, no, I'm not really, but it's like, there's room. The, the thing is there's just room for so many. There's room for so many people and so many podcasts, so many websites and wrestling is popular. And if you do good work, you're going to be rewarded. And the, it, it, the idea that you get to, that I don't want like this closed ecosystem of readers who only know that I exist. There's just no way that can happen. It's mm-hmm. like MSNBC pretending CNN doesn't exist. It's like it just does. There's a lot of news sources and you have to acknowledge that. But it's also healthy that The New York Times and The Washington Post, real journalism with real journalists with this mission and integrity of, of getting things right and having newsrooms that really it's not just an opinion with well, you know whatever you can buy into the the fake news stuff but i don't um as far as like real real newsrooms it's healthy that they're competing with each other but it's but they also are surviving and thriving because people most people know it know it when they see it when there's an integrity in real journalism and not something that's just an, an agenda that's masked that uh, an agenda masked by pretending to be news or something like that. So I just think that people end up figuring it out. You know, they figure out where people know what they're talking about and they seem like they're trustworthy and that's where they spend their time. So it has a way of kind of working itself out. Do you ever, or did you ever get to a place where the amount of work that you're doing and the amount of respect that you have for journalism, because it kind of sounds like your passion is journalism before your passion is wrestling. 
Um, do you, did you, or do you ever get to this place where you are trying to prove to other people in your field that what you're doing has merit and isn't just some goofy wrestling newsletter thing that's a hobby? Oh, like in the journalism field? Exactly. Like outside of wrestling? Right. Um, I, at a time I did. I mean, there was definitely a time when I felt that like that was a battle worth fighting, that, that there, there was such a thing as there, that the wrestling industry itself was worthy of journalistic coverage that fell in between the sports page and the variety page. And so because newspapers didn't know how to cover it, and I understand it when you know the evolution of it. I mean, it was a con, and journalists felt like if I try to get information, I'm going to be lied to. This is uh, a sports circus that is doesn't have any reason for us to cover it like a sport. But because of the con aspect of it, which was you know wrestlers pretending the fights were real and saying if you don't believe it, I'll beat you up. Come step in the ring, I'll show you how real it is. Journalists just sort of said, okay, we don't care. So there weren't a lot of reasons to cover this. T weekend TV show that led to once a month live events, they didn't, their journalism wasn't being done, but there was so much journalism to be done. Um, especially as it went national, got on national TV, became a big money business. But even in the territory days, there were stories to be told that weren't being told. And so, yes, I mean, I fought that battle in the late eighties, early nineties in, in really even in the two thousands during the, the drug, uh, uh, the, 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 I don't want to say drug scandals, but the, the epidemic of wrestlers who in the late 90s were, were dying in the 2000s and sometimes in the late 90s um, because of issues going on in the wrestling industry that, that felt like that was a flashing red light for real journalism. And, and some mainstream publications picked up on it and did stories just like they did in the early 90s when Vince McMahon went on trial for steroid distribution. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was there from you know, speaking of wrestling journalism or, you know, can wrestling be journalism? I was there in that courtroom from jury selection through closing arguments and and covered that trial. And the local New York reporters were coming to me after, during every break in the trial or at the end of the day going, what did that mean? Was that credible? What, you know, who was this person? Tell me more. And they would use that information as background for their stories. Um, so there have been absolute, there have been, times where wrestling obviously deserved mainstream wrestling attention. And I, I did feel like I wanted, to, and I, you know, they'd come to me. I mean, you know, the, the NPR, the BBC, you know, the cable news stations, they'd come to me in newspapers and say, you know, can we interview you for this? The AP just did last month mm -hmm. um, on the Saudi Arabia crown jewel controversy. So yes, I felt like that, but I don't feel as much like that now because I sort of feel like it's reached a point where it is now. Right. Um, appropriately so. Right, right. And that makes sense. Do you have a favorite story that you've broken or reported on over the years? No. No, I, I don't. Like, I'm not even sure, like, you know, in the sense of, you know, it was the most fun or it was the most satisfying in terms of being proud of the coverage in the end or the most uh, kind of stimulating from a, a journalism standpoint. I mean, the Vince McMahon trial was, was fascinating. Um, the, the rise and fall of Bill Watts in WCW as the savior who didn't work out <laughs> was fascinating. Um, it, there's been, you know, the, the Monday Night War was was just crazy. Um, the the Bret Hart screw job um, was, you know, I mean, there's yeah, I mean, there's been all there's just there's a, a list of 20, you know, 15, 20 stories that are probably relatively interchangeable uh, that were had the most just to sink your just to dive into and 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 feel like 
your work to talk to people and get to the truth and then dissect and analyze it was at a, a level different than kind of the the week to week storyline analysis, which I love. Um, but yeah, the, the the ones that are kind of larger industry wide stories from a journalism standpoint probably are my favorites. But I mean, I like the I like the week to week cycle or grind or um, cadence of the storylines and the ebb and flow of ratings and 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 business changes and strategies. I mean, I like that too. And that's not really like one singular thing. I don't know if you even look at it from this perspective at this point, but do you? I don't want to say favorite era because that kind of goes back to being a fan. But is do you? I mean, I guess not. Do you have a favorite era or an era in which you think that wrestling was at its best, or is it happening now? Or or do you have any thoughts on that? Interesting. Um, it no, I I don't. Um, because doing this job for thirty plus years now. It, it it feels like there's you know different era different eras in different ways that I reported. I mean, I think sometimes about how different my job is today than than it than it was you know 15 years ago and and 20 and 25 years ago. I mean, it's just because of technological changes. I'm not doing there. There's an aspect of what I do that's the same, and then and then there's an aspect of it that's entirely different because it's so podcast heavy now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still do a paper copy print newsletter in the other room. It's being processed for mailing right now as I record this for you. <laughs> um, and my deadline was last night. So I still have that, tr that tradition, but my passion now is, is the podcasting aspect and the fast turnaround time and, and all of that. And so to me, it's weird, but like when you talk about the favorite era, I, I it's, it's two things are linked. What's happening in wrestling. And then what is my, time distribution and technology of covering it. And those two are, to me, indivisible. So like the Vince McMahon trial took place over the course of three weeks. And after the first, was it the first week or the second week, I flew home on a three-day weekend and did a double issue of the newsletter and then flew back to New York for the rest of the trial while people helping me back here in Minnesota were mailing the newsletter out and get, getting it mailed. And so now, you of course, you just sit on your laptop right. and cover it. But I l had to get on a plane to come back to my computer, <laughs> which was tethered to my desk because it weighed 8,000 pounds and there was no internet, and write up a double issue that updated people who were on the edge of their seat wondering how it was going. And the only way to get them that information was to fly from New York back to Minnesota write an issue, type it up, send it to the printers, they'd print it, it'd get mailed and distributed. And then while I was back at the trial, people started getting the newsletter in the mail. It, so those, so yeah, it's, it's like, I don't have a favorite era. It's just like, it's just every, in, that would totally didn't answer your question, but it answered it in a different way, how I yeah. look at it. But there's absolutely, the short answer is there's times when wrestling is better than it is at other times. Uh -huh. um, but I, I've never, I, I, I've never, felt like there wasn't good wrestling that I could write about or talk about, but sometimes it wasn't the major promotion. Um, there see. were times when it absolutely was not even in this country. Um, and some would argue that now. Um, so, but there's always been good and bad wrestling. Sometimes the rate, uh, the ratio is often different. Well, listen, I mean, you're, you've made a lot of time for us. Clearly you're, you're a busy guy. You've been running an empire for the last uh, few decades. So, uh, it's a bit much, uh, but I appreciate the time uh, and like you said, you've become super podcast heavy. Your whole uh, PW Torch operation has become super podcast heavy, and I think that that is a, a very, very smart thing to do. Uh, where can people find all of the content that you put out there? 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, if, if people listen this long into it, they might be interested in diving into the history of what I've done. And so I, I didn't plan this, but I'll just do this. If you haven't taken advantage of a sale for us, like to be a, become a VIP member in the last year, um, and I didn't plan to do this, but you can just jump on board and see what we're doing for 50 cents. Huh. I'll give uh, $9.49. We're normally $9.99 a month. I'll just do a 50 cent sale for the next couple of weeks. If people are listening to the Sam Roberts podcast, go to pwtorchvipinfo.com pwtorchvipinfo.com. And uh, when you get to the sign up form, just enter SAM50, no space, SAM50. And that will take $9.49 off our normal rate. So for 50 cents, tries for a month. And you can actually go and read the stories I talked about on Bill Watts, Jim Cornette, the Vince McMahon trial, double issue. All of that is on our VIP website. And that also unlocks all of our podcasts. I do about 15 per week. And they're ad-free. And it's and there's a bunch of other podcasts with great people, too, um, some whom my subscribers like a lot more than me. Um, so try it all out. <laughs> Go to pwtorchvipinfo.com. If you don't want to do that, just check us out. Search Wade Keller on Apple Podcasts or wherever. And uh, the four shows, free shows I do per week will pop up and subscribe to that. And then my website is pwtorch.com. And I'm updating that every day, covering Raw and SmackDown Live and news updates and all that stuff. It's great stuff. And I love I love going through the old newsletters. That's I mean, that's my favorite <laughs> thing because I didn't have a subscription to the paper newsletters growing up. Like I didn't I didn't have that until later. I just didn't I didn't know about it. I didn't have access to it. It was one of those things where, you know, either you knew or you didn't know. I had you know, pro wrestling illustrated in the after magazines and stuff like that. But I just didn't, I wasn't a newsletter person. And a lot of this stuff was before the internet. So my favorite thing in the world is to go back to like probably 90 through 95, 96 yeah. and just read all this stuff that was before the backstage stories were everywhere. So, like, you know, we don't know. I, there's no backstage stories about Duke the Dumpster Drossy. There was no websites when he was around. There was no websites when Thurman's Sparky Plug was showing up. There was no websites <laughs> when, like, Earthquake was attacking Hulk Hogan. Like, all the, for me, and it's probably just because of my age and, and, and you know, my when I became a fan and everything, but going through those newsletters from the early 90s before, you know, the, the internet boom when you did, when everybody did have access to everything, is just, it's certainly worth 50 cents a month. So I would recommend uh, everybody checking it out. I appreciate you doing that for uh, all the listeners, Wade, and I appreciate you giving us some time today. Thanks, man. It was fun. I, I like talking about that stuff, and you asked great questions, so it was a pleasure. Thanks. Happy man. Thanksgiving. Bye and bye. you too. Here is Sam Roberts. What an interesting world. Thank you to Wade Keller for uh, filling us all in. You know, we started just kind of talking about Survivor Series, and really I'm glad that that's the road we went down. Because, you know, when you think about it, we all take for granted how easily accessible all this wrestling news is. But 1987, think about that. 1987. No internet. No nothing. Sitting in front of a computer and deciding to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and put together a wrestling newsletter. That's amazing. Cold calling people. cold Getting wrestlers' phone numbers and just being like, hey, I'm Wade. Will you talk to me? Will you tell me some secrets about wrestling? And then they'll do it because he's so good at what he does. Ah, very, very interesting. I'm a big fan of Wade Keller. I think he's a great dude. Um, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Let me know and let him know. And definitely take advantage of that deal he's offering you guys. 50 cents. I may take advantage of it. I'll put the code in myself. 50 cents for the first month over there. Lots of great content. Lots of great content. Uh, speaking of great content... So the WWE made it official. Everybody, uh, a lot of people were upset last year. Last year they did Starcade at the Greensboro Coliseum, I think. 
in Greensboro, North Carolina. I think that's what, whatever. It's in Greensboro, North Carolina. And people were annoyed that they didn't televise it, at least as a network special or something. Uh, it had the return of the natural Dustin Rhodes. They had a cage match. They had a whole bunch of stuff going on. Well, this time they are doing it. You know, there's been rumors about WWE testing out filming house shows so that they can put them on the WWE network and maybe tier pricing and, and whatever. Look, I'm going to pay whatever the top tier of WWE network pricing is because right now $9.99 for what they're offering, it's it's a crazy low price. But, and first month's free. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll do a, a pre-show for it. Um, they, they've announced, there's a card. But so the, the show is on Saturday. The actual special is on Sunday. So they're going to take the house show and, and, and break it down to a one-hour special so that, um, you know, so that, so that we can all watch on Sunday at 8 o'clock. I'm looking up uh, the, the card so I can share it with you right now. This is the card. Um, Seth Rollins versus Dean Ambrose for the Intercontinental Championship in a street fight. I have to imagine that will not be on the show because they want to save it for TLC. Braun Strowman versus Baron Corbin. Uh, I would think that that's going to get changed because Braun Strowman's injured. AJ Styles versus Samoa Joe in a steel cage match. Absolutely, that seems like it's designed for a network special. Miz TV with U.S. champion Shinsuke Nakamura and Rey Mysterio. I bet that'll be on the special. Shinsuke Nakamura versus Rey Mysterio for the U.S. championship. I bet that'll be on the special. Uh, Finn Balor versus Drew McIntyre. That seems like it'll be on. Uh, ooh, special concert with Elias and Ric Flair. That sounds good. The Bar versus The New Day for the Tag Team Championship of SmackDown. Miz versus Rusev also appearing Charlotte Flair, Alexa Bliss, and Dolph Ziggler. It looks like a good show. Looks like a fun card, and uh, I think it's super fun that WWE is doing this. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching it. If it's something you want me to do on uh, for Patreon as a bonus show, hit me up on Twitter and let me know. Let's get into it, folks. It's State of Wrestling time. It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling. Here we go. State of Wrestling time here from the Not Sam studio. As always, my headphones sound a little weird all of a sudden. Hopefully, it's just my headphones and not a, a weird echoing sound. That's a little better. We'll figure that out. Anyway, welcome to the State of Wrestling here for the Thanksgiving not Sam Wrestling Podcast. Uh, big stuff, big stuff, big stuff to talk about. Of course, we'll start with number five. You know what we do on the State of Wrestling, as if I have to tell you. We count down top five biggest stories in the world of wrestling, according to yours truly, the last professional broadcaster, Sam Roberts. Number five, let's talk a little bit about Survivor Series. Survivor Series went down this weekend. Bless up. I was lucky enough to... Uh, be uh, in attendance for the event. I was uh, backstage. Of course, I was on the kickoff show the night before for NXT TakeOver uh, War Games 2. NXT TakeOver War Games 2, which, by the way, that's not one of the top five things on this list, but what a fabulous show. The year that NXT has had with TakeOvers, I mean, my God, every TakeOver. Think about it. January, you had uh, in Philadelphia... You had the main event. You had uh, Gargano versus Andrade Almas. People forget that match was unbelievable. You had the hardcore match between Adam Cole and Aleister Black. Unbelievable. We go to uh, take over New Orleans. 
We go to take over, and that was, uh, I believe, Gargano and Ciampa. We go to take over Chicago. Oh, wait. Anyway, take over Chicago was definitely Gargano, Ciampa. Then you go to uh, uh, take over Brooklyn. That was Gargano, Ciampa, too. You go to take over War Games, too. Oh, my God. Every takeover this year has been spectacular. All of them. I, I've never seen anything like it. That's right. I, I take over uh, New Orleans was Alistair Black versus Andrade. Uh, unbelievable throughout the whole year. The all the whole NXT crew needs to be really really proud of themselves because the run that they're on right now is like nothing I've ever seen before. I, I to, to just go five. They went five for five this year. Five for five. I think NXT is probably the best it's ever been at this moment. I don't think they've ever been better. Um, so Survivor Series, though, was this weekend, of course. Um, and a couple of things to come out of that. Um, firstly, you know, we, we can talk about the fact that Raw swept. Technically 6-1, and one, I suppose, because the tag team match happened on the kickoff show. Clearly, they didn't count the tag team match on the kickoff show because they wanted Raw to sweep. But what I didn't understand with the fallout of Survivor Series was if a couple of months ago, not even, Shane McMahon was so obsessed with brand supremacy and SmackDown that he said if a SmackDown guy did not win the World Cup, whoever lost would be fired. That's how bad he wanted to prove SmackDown was the best. Now we're at this pay-per-view where it's brand supremacy. Raw does a clean sweep. Raw wins every single match. And really, the management on SmackDown, Shane McMahon and Paige, aren't all that bothered by it. Ah, it was a gallon effort. It is what it is. Really odd. Really weird to go that way because, you know, it, it hurts next year. When you want to convince people again that, that Raw versus SmackDown is a battle worth having, you know, and I think you can. I'm not one of these people that thinks the battle for brand supremacy uh, is a waste of time. I don't mind it. I think it adds some spice to the pay-per-view. It, it gives you matches that you'd never seen before or never, you know, that you wouldn't see normally. Whether it's Charlotte and Ronda, Shinsuke versus Seth was amazing. All the matches on the show were good. Even the pre-show match, the tag match was great. Mustafa Ali crushed it again. I don't know if they're trying to make us fall in love with this guy before they put the title on him, but he should have been the cruiserweight champion at WrestleMania. Mustafa Ali is Mustafa Ali is the truth. He's so good. And whether he's on the offense or the defense, he's great. Um, but all the matches were good. You know, Barr versus Authors of Pain, but I just wish that there was a little bit of follow-up that Shane should have been pretty pissed that everybody lost, and I guess he wasn't. But Shane, what a performance by Shane, huh? Jumping all over the place. Unbelievable. Unbelievable performance by Shane. Um, you know, the question is, what was match of the night? And match of the night, it it's boiled down to two. It's the last two matches, Charlotte versus Ronda or Brian versus Brock. And... I, for me personally, I go with Brian versus Brock for match of the night, and that's only because, well, I mean, I like the match better, but it had it had a, a conclusion to it. It took people on a wild ride. To be able to sit out in that audience and listen to people chanting, same old you-know-what, 
and then chanting, this is awesome, within three minutes of each other. It's amazing. It's, and it's a really, really rare thing. You don't get to see that, really. So the idea that those performers were able to take this audience on a ride, the idea that Daniel Bryan was able to translate his new character without ever really doing a promo by just showing you through the entrance and through the performance in the ring, through the eyes and the faces and everything, that we were able to get a taste of what this new Daniel Bryan character is, that was very, very exciting to me. And, and the look that they gave each other at the end of the show, when Daniel Bryan was laughing like he'd accomplished something, even though he had just gotten the crap kicked out of him, and Brock was kind of smiling back like, yeah, you left a boot print in my face. The shots that Bryan was unleashing on Brock Lesnar. And by the way, go back, I mean, it was probably years ago at this point, when Daniel Bryan's book came out, uh, and he did an interview for the podcast, and it's it's on the podcast, it's also on my YouTube channel, if you want to find it there. Uh, and he said that he likes to wrestle stiff. You know, he likes hard hitting. That's why he ended up bleeding, you know, in the forehead in that match with Sheamus. It was from a headbutt. Uh, before he ended up going away with the injury. So it must have been three years ago that we did that interview. Um, So he must have been in heaven because the shots that those two were taking each other were unbelievable. But for a guy like Daniel Bryan, that just shows you the testicular fortitude on this guy. For this guy to be able to step up and take the kind of shots at Brock that he took at him, knowing that Brock was going to be able to get his hands on him and return the favor on all of them, uh, awesome, awesome. Hats off to Daniel Bryan. Unbelievable performance. You know, the the uh, Charlotte-Ronda match was awesome, too. And that was a risky scenario to put those women in because, you know, the fans had spent weeks building up towards this Ronda-Becky match that had the best build of any match on the show by a mile. And so to then have to sit there and give them the other match, like Charlotte and Ronda absolutely had to deliver. And they really did. You know, for Ronda, you know... We forget how many people were doubting her. How many of us were doubting her going into WrestleMania? How good is she really going to be? For her to deliver performances like she's delivering them is pretty pretty remarkable. It's really, really cool to see. Uh, speaking of the women, Nia Jax, of course, got booed pretty much out of Survivor Series because of what she did to Becky. And, you know, I mean, some people are like, well, that's not real heat because people are really mad at, 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 at Nia because she was careless with Becky. But it is real heat. Like, you're going to boo her when she fights Ronda. And even if the reason she's getting booed is because of Becky, she's still getting booed. Like, it's still effective. So I don't I don't think that... I think, if anything, Nia Jax has become a bigger star because of all of it. You know, I, I, think, I think this has been actually quite good for Nia Jax. So the winner's coming out of Survivor Series. Honestly, I think Nia Jax is a winner coming out of Survivor Series. Both Daniel Bryan and Brock Lesnar are winners coming out of Survivor Series. Both Ronda and Charlotte are winners coming out of Survivor Series. I thought um, Sonya Deville was a big winner coming out of Survivor Series. They really went out of their way to make her look strong, I thought, in that women's elimination tag match. Um, I thought the Carmella dance break was phenomenal. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was a pretty good show. It was a pretty solid show. All the matches were good. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really, I enjoyed myself and I enjoyed just getting to sit back and watch it. It was, uh, it was a cool thing. Seth Rollins and Nakamura was phenomenal. 
I thought that match was great. I actually liked what Nakamura was wearing. Some people thought it was a weird, like, uh, I, I, I said it was like a Michael Jackson wetsuit that he was wearing under the SmackDown t-shirt. I've never seen anything like that before, but who knows? Maybe he'll wear more wetsuits to the ring, more Michael Jackson one-piece wetsuits. I don't know. But I thought it, I thought he looked good. I thought it was a cool look. Um, so let's move on to story number four that also went down Survivor Series weekend. And story number four is David Arquette. He was part, and our podcast here, Not Sam Wrestling, is all wrapped up in this whole story. You remember when Joey Janela was on the show not too long ago, right after All In. Joey Janela popped into the Not Sam studio, and he talked about uh, Joey Janela's Escape from Los Angeles, I believe was the name of the show. Uh, the Game Changer Wrestling uh, co-promoted with him. Uh, and, of course, he was not on the show because now he's injured. But the reason why I bring that up is, number one, we were all excited for the show because of Joey Janela's appearance here on the podcast. But number two, last week on the podcast, David Arquette was on the show, and he was talking about wrestling, and he was talking about his career, and he was talking about the fact that if somebody, if he felt somebody was taking liberties with him, he was ready to fight. Now, for some reason... He agreed to fight a death match with Nick Gage. I don't know how many of you guys know Nick Gage, but he is like the most, he went to jail for bank robbery. Legit. His career was interrupted so he could do some time in jail for bank robbery. Like he is as legit as it gets. He's the last person in the world that I would want to end up in a death match with. So this video goes everywhere, and dude, this is, it was Friday night, and I know it was Friday night, because on Saturday, as I was doing the NXT pre-show with Pat McAfee and Charlie Caruso, uh, I got distracted, because a guy, as I was sitting there on the set, and I don't know if you could see it on TV or not, a guy walked up to me, like he was saying hello, and, and I was like, what? And I, it was David Arquette. He had his hair slicked back, but he had like marks all over him because he had just been in a war the night before. And he walked over to say hi, but then he realized there was cameras and lighting everywhere. And he just goes, hey, man. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And he walked off because <laughs> he didn't realize, I guess, that we were doing the show. But um, David Arquette, he said on the podcast that if somebody were to take liberties with him, uh, he would be ready to fight. He would be ready to fight back. Uh, and and we saw that man. Uh, I don't think that he was fully familiar with what a death match was, because he stepped in there and uh, he got he got I think hit in the neck with a light tube, and his neck ended up bleeding, and he went into rage. Man, you can see him in the video. That's what it looks like to me. He just sees red because all of a sudden he gets on top of Nick Gage, and Nick Gage has his look in his face like, "What are you doing, dude?" I don't want to have to actually beat you up. This is a death match. You're David Arquette from Scream. Like, I don't want to get in a fight with you. We're, I I hit you with a light tube and a pizza cutter. That's what we do. Part of deathmatch wrestling, bro. And then he gets out of the ring, and then he got back in the ring and, and finished it. But I don't think that he thought he was going to get his neck cut. You know, I, I, I think a couple things here. Um... You know, I saw the Hurricanes tweet, and I always, and I talked about this with Nia Jax last week, I always defer to wrestlers' opinions on stuff like this, because they're the experts. And Hurricane, uh, who's done the podcast before, I love the Hurricane, was tweeting about how it was the Booker's fault, because the Booker's put somebody in a match that was not ready to do that match. And there is, I, I, I agree with that. You know, when you're, I, first of all, I think David Arquette is a grown man at this point, and he should know what he's signing up for. 
you know. But there's also this thing where he's a stranger in a strange land. He's new to this world, and he wants to please people. He doesn't want to say no to people. He wants to prove that he's tough enough to do this stuff. And maybe he doesn't know what the best thing for him to do is. Maybe he doesn't quite know what he's ready for and what he's not ready for. Um, And there should be somebody who's there to say, like, look, I'm putting this show on. This probably isn't the best spot for you. We'll put you over here. So I, 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 and that's what the hurricane was saying, that it was really the booker's responsibility. But I think that David Arquette needs to take some responsibility too. I think, you know, if he's going to wrestle, he should know what he's signing up to do. And if he's not ready to do it, he should tell the promoters, I can't, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. I'm not going to get stabbed in the neck with a light tube by Nick Gage. Why would anybody do that? Um, so David Arquette had a responsibility to do that, but I, I guess I guess the promotion could have sat there and been like, David, do you know what you're getting into? Which maybe they did. I wasn't there. But the video looks brutal. It looks like a death match, you know? People, it, it looks brutal because it's David Arquette that it's happening to. But these death matches are absolutely brutal. It's not fake. You know, when they hit somebody in the side of the neck with a light tube... Light tubes are made of glass. Broken glass breaks skin. It's what happens. It cuts. It's sharp like a knife. So, you know, I I, I just think in 2018, we all need to be responsible, right? We need to know what kind of position we're putting people in and people need to be know what kind of positions they're agreeing to be put into, you know. But luckily, David Arquette is okay. He's going to continue his wrestling career. And he was ready to get in a fight with Nick Gage, so I respect him. I respect the fact that he thought something was going wrong and he wasn't afraid. He lived up to exactly what he said he would do on this podcast last week. He stepped up to him and he wasn't going to put up with it until he realized all that was happening was just a part of the match. Moving on to story number three, speaking of uh, promotions and shows and stuff like that, there's been a lot of talk about what Cody Rhodes, the Young Bucks, Marty Skrull, what the elite is going to do it themselves. So one thing that is official, December 18th, final battle in New York City, Cody Rhodes has said will be his last match in Ring of Honor. He signed the deal. He's honoring the deal. This is the end of the deal. Cody Rhodes' final match in Ring of Honor is at final battle, he says, on December 18th. That's about a month away, a little less than a month away. Um, so, and, and we also know that... The other contracts are coming up too. The Young Bucks contract, I think Marty's contract, they all kind of come together at the same time. Cody has said that they all want to stay together. Cody has said that they are not part of the Bullet Club, which would lead me to believe that New Japan is not where they're going. Um, There's really only a couple of things for them to do. I think there's three things for them to do. Number one, exist almost the way... Uh, Billy Corgan and Dave Lagana have the NWA existing, right? Where they're just uh, independent contractors completely, but being the elite is the hub of everything they do. Whereas the NWA champion Nick Magnus would go to every independent show to defend the title. 10 Pounds of Gold, the YouTube series, is what connects the NWA. So there is that version of it where they could just wrestle independently and let being the elite be the hub, be the base, the home base of everything that they do. So that's one thing they could do. Another thing they could do is go to WWE, of course. Uh, And there's many things that they could do. And the third thing is start their own promotion. And as of today, 
time of this recording, a lot of people are speculating that that's what they're doing because of a bunch of trademarks that were filed uh, around the elite and all in. So the trademarks uh, are apparently registered to uh, the guy, he owns some sports team. I don't know anything about sports. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick so I don't sound like a horse's patoot. I just had it in my head and uh, now it's out of my head. But uh, the trademarks uh, are filed to the address of the guy who own, is a part owner or is the son or whatever of a part owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. So that's the, apparently there's some money behind this thing. And apparently these trademarks are registered to Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and these guys. And they registered all elite wrestling. They registered all out. They registered uh, AEW double or nothing. Uh, and, and a few other things that would lead you to believe that they are registering pay-per-view names and promotion names for what they're going to do in the future. Uh, so there, so that's, this could be a red herring, right? So th this could be just them buying these things up to get people talking and then they show up in WWE. My own selfish hope, I would love to see these guys show up in WWE. And I'm thinking optimistically, you know, there's always the chance and it's not that far out of a chance. There's lots of guys who have had great careers outside of WWE that show up to WWE and it doesn't work. And the nightmare of every wrestling fan is that Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks and Marty Skrull and Adam Page, they show up to WWE and it doesn't work. And WWE squanders the opportunity and everything that was built goes away. Um, and that is a risk. But just the idea, I would put Adam Page in NXT. But just the idea of Marty Skrull, Cody Rhodes, and the Young Bucks invading the Royal Rumble, they're not even in the Royal Rumble, but they invade Giant Gonzalez style and just clear the ring and then maybe run away or something like that and just start. It's it's like uh, almost like the Shield meets the Four Horsemen meets the NWO. You know, I, I just, I, 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 I feel like Number one, I do still feel like for a lot of wrestlers' legacies, being in the WWE is important. And I say that about the Young Bucks. I say that about Marty Skrull. And I say that about this version of Cody Rhodes. I think this version of Cody Rhodes needs a run in WWE. Let's see if the WWE and Cody Rhodes are ready to go on the run that Cody Rhodes wants to have, you know? Um, but let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say these copyrights are being filed. These trademarks are being filed because this promotion really is going to happen. I think the more wrestling, the better. I think the more wrestling, the better. And if anybody's going to start a promotion, it should be these guys. I think Ring of Honor is in tremendous trouble. If they don't have the Bullet Club guys, Ring of Honor is in a lot of trouble. Now, they probably will. I mean, I'm sure they'll still have their New Japan relationship. So they'll still be able to get uh, Naito and and uh, Bushi and 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 everybody that they need to get from Okada, everybody that they need to get from New Japan, and who knows, Kenny Omega may stay with New Japan, in which case he'd be able to still do Ring of Honor shows, although he doesn't do them all that often now. Uh, it'll be really interesting because people bought tickets to the Madison Square Garden Ring of Honor New Japan show probably thinking that the elite would be there. Now they won't. 
So I do wonder if people will be complaining about that. Um, what do I think of the promotion itself? I think if anybody's going to start a promotion, it should be those guys. Uh, the the smoothness and the production value and the level of expertise that felt like went into the all-in pay-per-view. It Was it perfect? No. Is it mind-blowing that the people who put that show on had never done a pay-per-view before? Yes. That is mind-blowing that that was produced by Cody and the Bucks and and it was so well done. You know, so I don't think uh you know, they're creative guys. They they hang with all the best wrestlers in the world. So, I think that all elite wrestling certainly has a great opportunity to be the number 2 promotion, especially in in the states, maybe in the world, but definitely in the states. If they're not going I don't care how much money you put into it, they're not going to come close to WWE. That's the other thing. It's like They'll always be second to WWE at best. So if they're going to be second to WWE at best, you almost get to a point where you go, what would be better? What, what, is, the, what is the lesser of two evils? Straight up being second to WWE or doing something with WWE? Hopefully they do something with WWE, but I wouldn't be at all shocked if all elite wrestling becomes a product in 2019. And if it does, I will be there supporting it. Because... Everybody involved in it, I trust to put on an amazing show. Speaking of an amazing show, story number two is the Daniel Bryan promo from SmackDown explaining why he turned on AJ Styles. I thought it was phenomenal. A couple of you on Twitter didn't like it. I don't understand that at all. Everything from Daniel saying uh, balls and emphasizing the word balls to explaining that he had to have Brock Lesnar beat the old Daniel Bryan out of him to explaining that he still believes, uh, believe in your dreams and your dreams will fight or fight for your dreams and your dreams will fight for you. But that mantra is what drove him to this crazy point. The fact that his motivation makes sense. He's still the same guy, but his dreams have driven him crazy. He just comes across like a true comic book supervillain. And I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool to see. It's about time we get this side of Daniel Bryan. I like that not only is he not doing the yes chant, he's not doing the no chant either. Um, you know, I thought his wardrobe on SmackDown was great. Clearly, the uh, yes t-shirts are not going to be moving like they used to because he's over it. He's over it, and I, I hope I hope they keep the title on him for a while because I love this version of Daniel Bryan right now. I think there's nothing but potential for this version of Daniel Bryan. And let's be honest, there really wasn't too much going on for Daniel Bryan before this. You know, aside from his return, it was time for a refresher. And boy, did he get one to come off of that amazing match with Brock with that amazing promo explaining exactly what's going on in his head. Hats off to Daniel Bryan. Next level stuff on SmackDown. Next level. Finally, speaking of next level, a next level athlete. Story number one, Braun Strowman is injured for real, for real. Now, uh, Starcade, he is booked uh, on the current schedule for Starcade. So we'll see what happens with that because that's on Saturday with the uh, WWE Network special going on on Sunday. Maybe we'll do a pre-show or something for that uh, on uh, Patreon. But uh, let me know on Twitter, by the way, at NotSam, if you want me to do 
a pre-show for the Starcade special on Sunday night. We do it probably around 7 o'clock at night on Sunday before the 8 p.m. Eastern showing of Starcade. Uh, I, I'm sure he won't be at Starcade. If he is, I'll just probably give somebody a big boot or something. Apparently, he's got some kind of chips, bone chips, floating around in his elbow, and he needs to get surgery on it. Uh, that's why they did the shtick with him, uh, you know, getting his elbow smashed in the steel stairs. They say it's a four-week turnaround, and hopefully he'll be ready to go for TLC. Uh, I would imagine that he will be because he, I, the storyline that they started that ended with him getting injured was a storyline that builds to TLC. You know, if he was going to get injured and miss TLC, I don't think they would have bothered setting up TLC two minutes before he got written off the show. Um, so it remains to be seen, but I'll tell you, with these injuries... It really goes to show you how deep WWE's talent roster is. The fact that, like, you know, Becky's gone. Roman's gone. Braun Strowman's got his shoulder thing. Alexa Bliss is off TV. And they haven't missed anything. They have not missed an inch. Nothing. That's how deep both the talent roster and their roster of legends is that they have ready to go at a moment's notice. It's really cool to watch... Uh, to see other people get opportunities and deliver on them. And that's what Survivor Series was all about. Two of those matches had a, a, a six- and five-day build going into them, and they were the two best matches of the night. So it's big stuff. It's big stuff. And uh, hopefully uh, Becky Lynch is already starting to feel better because I can't wait till she comes back. I cannot wait. Guys, thank you for being a part of Not Sam Wrestling this week and the state of wrestling. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Toodaloo, everybody. Hey, this is Colt Cabana. I've been wrestling on the independent wrestling scene for the past 20 years. From the gathering of the Juggalos to the border towns in Mexico. My podcast is The Art of Wrestling, and each week I document my adventures. We're in Winchow, which is about an hour outside of Shanghai by flight. So the sumo hall, the whole bottom is like where they watch sumo wrestling. The ring is in the middle, so there's chairs there. And then the whole there's a whole top tier too, right? Yeah. I'm coming up on 18 years of independent professional wrestling and nothing but. And to see it get to this level, I've gotten goosebumps like three times during the show. As a guy who had a, a snake his whole career, do you feel akin to like the animals here and stuff? Just a freak show part of it. There you go. Yeah. We're on a boat in the middle of nowhere. And this thing came flapping in and it was like in slow motion. It just crashed. It, was it crashed into the front row. Hear a new documentary every week about the weird world of pro wrestling, the art of wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts or colcabana.com. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam.